Happy Labor Day. And turn to Genesis 19, if you would. That's where we are. We're in Genesis chapter 19. And I knew that a lot of people would be traveling, but it looks like we still got a pretty full crowd, so I suspect many people might be visiting, and we're glad you're here. Uh, in spite of the difficulty and the rocky terrain of this particular message, um, I trust that everybody will still be blessed by it and encouraged by what we have to say because it's a, it's a difficult subject that we're going to be dealing with. We're dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah today, but to bring you up to speed, let me back up here a little bit and say that up to this point, we're teaching through the book of Genesis, and when we hit Genesis chapter 12, a number of chapters back, we were introduced to a man by the name of Abraham. And Abraham was called of God to be the father of a great nation, and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. In other words, the Messiah would come through Abraham. It didn't long after that before we're introduced to his nephew Lot. And Abraham and Lot are contrasted in many respects. Abraham being the uncle, Lot being the nephew, Abraham being the more mature, Lot being the less mature, Abraham growing in his faith, Lot declining in his faith. So there's a lot here that is before us in this particular text. And we're going to take about three weeks, Lord willing, on Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis 18, what I didn't cover as we were looking at Genesis 18 is I did not cover the last number of verses dealing with Abraham's prayer uh, before the Lord, his intercessory prayer. And Abraham basically was saying to the Lord, will you spare Sodom if there are 50 righteous people in the city? And the Lord says, yes. Abraham says, what about 45? He says, yes. How about 40, 30, 20, 10? What we don't know is why he stopped at 10. One thing we do know, he knew that his nephew Lot was in the city, and he certainly wanted him spared. Would God spare the righteous in the midst of this wicked city? God doesn't spare the city, but he does spare Lot. All right? We'll get to that, Lord willing, in, in the next few weeks we're going through this particular chapter. In chapter 18, we were also introduced to three men. They came and Abraham bowed down to them and he had them in for a great meal. And we said that at meals, many revelations are given at meals throughout Scripture. One of those men, or appeared as a man, was God himself. The other two are angels. God has now stepped back and he has sent two angels into Sodom to destroy Sodom and to warn the men to leave that are, that are truly believers, Lot and his wife. So, as we look at this, that's the setting. Okay, that's the setting that we have before us. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses. We'll pray, and we'll dive in to a very difficult subject. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1 of Genesis 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, then go on your way in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of, the, of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, 
No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them here out to you, and you can do whatever you like to them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, they're speaking of Lot, they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. Father, not an easy text, but one that you want us to know about, one that you've revealed. And so I pray that you'd give me wisdom and ears to hear today as we walk through this difficult passage. It's always our desire to see that you'd be the one to receive all the glory. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This text and this subject, any subject on sexuality, particularly a subject like this, is volatile, complex, sensitive, and as well, divisive. And we know that. You'd have to be living in a cave not to know all the problems that we're experiencing today in the area of politics and the church and everything else that's going on, and all the different views that people have on this particular subject matter. This week, we are mainly laying the groundwork by looking at the life of Lot and the compromise that Lot finds himself in. And we'll draw some principles from that. Next week, here are the things that I want to cover, Lord willing, next week. What do we say to people that say, I have same-sex attraction, I was born that way. We'll talk about that next week. What about this? What about Christians that have said, you know, all those verses in Leviticus and Romans and here in, in, uh, in Genesis really have nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Uh, we've misunderstood those verses for the last 2,000 years. And they see no problem with gay marriage and this sort of thing. What do we say to people within our own, own camp? All right? What do we say to the world that calls us narrow-minded, intolerant bigots? How do we handle that? When deep down you're saying to yourself, I'm not that. But the world has been taught to think that we are. And the church, in some respects, is blameworthy. How do we engage the world that hates what we believe? And is the church guilty of much of what the world charges us with? So as you can see, I've got my homework cut out for me next week. Uh, I'll just let somebody else come up here and preach, but I've got... <clears throat> it's a tough subject, very, very tough subject, in which, in which the Lord reveals so much great truth, which we will see, <coughs> Lord willing, in this particular text. About three years ago, I addressed this. Excuse me for my cough. I've got this typical thing that I get, hay fever, whatever, this time of year. About two years ago, I, uh, three years ago, I addressed this, and I gave two taglines. The first tagline was, until you see yourself as sexually broken, you have no business judging the brokenness of somebody else. Because heterosexuals are broken, homosexuals are broken, we're broken spiritually, emotionally, physically. After the fall of Adam and Eve, everybody's broken. Level playing field, all right? Secondly, I said, love is not to be construed as agreement, and disagreement is not to be construed as hate. So when we disagree today with the world and the sexual revolution, we're often seen as very hateful. 
how do we navigate those waters? How do we, how do we work our way through that? So the big picture today is how has Lot been influenced by the world and the city that's around him, and how are we influenced? Uh, what does salt and light look like in, in this world? Uh, and, of course, much more coming up next week on that. Let's take a look at this. The first couple of verses, <coughs> Lot is, he bows down to these two men that are here, these angels, and he invites them to come to his house to have a meal. And I think what is most interesting in this text, and it's interesting to me what God leaves in a text and what he, what he doesn't put in. It says the men said, no, we'll, we'll stay here in the city square. We're, we're not going to go home with you. Why bother even putting that in the text? Who cares? They're still going to wind up at his house. But there's no words that are lost in Scripture. Every word counts. And as I kept looking at this, I thought, why does he say that? Why does he, why does he leave that? <clears throat> Their refusal to go with them sets the whole stage for the narrative. Everything hinges on the fact that they refuse to go. Because he strongly goes on and tells them, but I want you to come with me. Listen to what it says here. He says in verse 2, My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet even in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. Verse 3, but he insisted so strongly that they ended up going with him. He prepared a meal and so forth. Why is this revealed to us? Because it shows you that Lot was well aware of what would happen if they stayed in the city when night came. He knew the city very well. He knew all about the city. He knew the wickedness of the city. And he said, I don't want you staying in the city. And that's why he insists, and that's why it was necessary for the men to have said, no, we'll, we'll stay here. Because it shows you what he knew. When you turn to the New Testament, in Second Peter, it talks about God destroying <clears throat> the world in the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says this. This is very key. It says, Lot, who was a righteous man, he wasn't living righteously. He was talking about the righteousness that is placed to a person's account when they believe in Christ. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Same with Lot. Lot, this righteous man, while he was dwelling in Sodom, it said it tormented his soul with what he saw day after day. It tormented him. You don't have to be a believer. And if you're visiting here today and you don't call yourself a believer, you don't have to be a believer to have your soul and your conscience tormented or dealt with harshly by your own conscience when you know you've done something wrong. Lot, it's heightened because Lot is a believer and the Spirit of God is dealing with him. And so his conscience is heightened. And his sensitivity to what is taking place is heightened. And so it says... This righteous man, Lot, it says his soul was, was literally tormented. The same thing is true with our soul 
in other areas. It doesn't have to be just sexuality. You can be, you can be so trapped by material possessions and the love for material possessions, you can't even sleep at night. And you know that your soul is being tormented. It's being troubled. It's being vexed, as King James refers to it. <clears throat> you can be a person who finds yourself lying a lot, and it troubles your righteous soul. You can be involved in looking at pornography, and you know that it troubles your soul, but you still stay in it. He continued to stay in this city that was deeply impacting his life, rather than him impacting the life of the city. So, there's a lot to learn here when you look at the narrative as it is revealing great truths about believers, unbelievers, life, the human soul, sin, the things that trouble us, no matter who we are, no matter what our sexuality is. All these things are very, very troubling. And the Bible just loves to tell the truth, even if it's the hard truth. Even if it's the hard truth, the Bible will continue to tell the truth. Look if you would at verses 4 and 5. This is when it gets really difficult. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called Lot, where are the men, these angels that are, look like men, that have come to you tonight. Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. <coughs> now you notice it refers to the whole city. It says, both young and old, all the men of the city. Now, occasionally the Bible will say things like, and the whole world was called to be taxed. Well, not every single world, person in the world. Sometimes the Bible will use the, the, the general vicinity or a little hyperbole to get the point across. But I think the vast majority of this city, the men, were homosexual. I think the vast majority were. That's what it says. All right. Now, here's what is what is troubling, how could they have gotten to this point? How could this have even happened? Once you get involved in pagan worship, once you, once you find yourself being taught certain things that are, that are against what the Bible teaches, you can find yourself easily giving in. This is what is happening to many, many Christians and churches and so on. They're giving up on this battle and just simply saying, well, let's just go with the flow. It's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. We'll talk a little bit about how we navigate some of those waters. In the United States today, with the sexual revolution in the LGBT community and the pressure that is being put on Congress and being put on just everywhere, is that you don't really know what your sexuality is. Don't bother what your sexual organs tell you. We will tell you what you are. And we're going to start at the age of four and five. That's starting in California. And it's coming to a theater near you. It always moves this way. All right? They want the child not to be told what they are, but what they think they are. Sexuality is not what you physically are, it's what you think you are. That's where we are today. That's what happened here. That's exactly what happened here. Romans 1 talks about exchanging the truth for a lie. I have friends that were strong believers that went off to college, started getting involved in all these different things, then started experimenting totally changed their gender because they were told it's what you think you are, not what you really are. So these things can happen, and my concern is what will happen in the United States if every child in the public school system eventually is being told your parents are not going to tell you what you are. 
It's what you think you are. And we're going to help you think. We're going to help you think. Scriptures just continue to reveal incredible truth. Incredible truth as to what the world even looks like and, and where I think we're, we're headed. Look at verses 6 and 7. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Notice that? Wicked thing. Let me pause here in that verse. He refers to what they're getting ready to do as wicked. But look what he's getting ready to do. And his daughter's over. Lest you, if you are, would consider yourself heterosexual, and you find yourself looking down on people who are gay, or not, not straight, as whatever the terms are today, you will find yourself in a position of judging. Because if you go through Scripture, the number of verses that deal with homosexuality is very small in comparison with the number of verses dealing with heterosexuality that's out of control. Rape, murder, horrible things taking place all throughout Scripture that deal with heterosexuality, dealing with people fornicating, living together, all kinds of things, and God just spreads that as through the entire narrative. The issue of homosexuality is just sprinkled in a few places. So for the heterosexual to get on their high horse and look down at a person who calls themselves gay or has same-sex attraction is in the eyes of God an abomination. It, you, you are never to look down on anybody because as I said, we are all broken. It's a level playing field. Everyone is broken in some way. If you're heterosexual, you've probably got struggles with your thought life or pornography or this. If you're gay, you've got the same kind of struggles. It's just in a different area. All right? And this is why Jesus, when he talks about love your neighbor as yourself, that love becomes the major contributing and controlling virtue in the midst of this without compromise. Jesus never compromised on what he said about marriage or gender or anything else. But he still loved people through those things. That's what's key. That's what the church has to learn. And that's a very difficult set of rapids to navigate, as we'll continue to look at. Then he says in verse, verse 8, it says this, Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they are under my, the protection of my roof. Now, keep in mind, in those days, when you brought a stranger in, your roof was a protection. But not, not to the exclusion of your daughters. Uh, this was such an incredible demise and drop in, in, in Lot's thinking. And it only shows you the compromises that Lot made, finds himself in the midst of this, and doesn't know quite what to do. But now look at how far we've all fallen today. And here's a, we've all seen this, it's nothing new, it's out in the papers everywhere. Look what the Catholic Church is going through. But if the Protestant Church points its finger at the Catholic Church, I have enough information on the Protestant Church. Because the things I read, the blogs I read, know what's going on. One of the biggest pastors in the land has had a moral fall for 30 years and nobody even knew about it. It isn't just the Catholic Church. It's rampant. It's rampant. And the battle will always be here. It's divisive. It's sensitive, it's complex. There are so many issues that are just way, way beyond my full understanding of all of this. 
But I do know this. I know that the church needs to be a loving community, though it disagrees with the community outside. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says this. Get out of our way, they say. They replied. And they said, this fellow, they're not talking about Lot. They're all outside. They're talking about Lot. They say, this fellow came here as an alien, as a stranger. You weren't born in Sodom. What are you doing here? And now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. It shows you the passion that continues to take place. Heterosexual, gay, doesn't make any difference. Sexual passion is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Particularly in a society like ours that is all stirred up with the internet and everything else. But I, I discovered this this morning. As many times through the years I've taught through this or read this, I had never noticed this. He says, Lot says, don't do this wickedness. What do the men say? Who are you to judge us? You find that today's society? If the church says we're opposed to gay marriage, who are you to judge us? You're narrow-minded, you're hateful, and you're bigoted. How does the church prove the world wrong in that thinking? How do we do that? And is the church guilty of creating that narrative in our society? I think so, to some degree. To some degree. But there's a huge spin right now. And the world themselves, even if you say we love you, they're not buying it. They're not buying it. And this is what we have to work through. And I'm responsible for here, not any place else, but this is what we have to, have to work through. So here we find that the very same thing that's being happening today is you're judging us. That's what they're saying. You're judging us. He makes a statement, you're judging us. All right? And he had no position, particularly if he's going to offer up his own daughters. All right? Look, if you would, at verses 10 and 11, and we'll wrap up some thoughts here. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. There's almost an implication that even though they're blind, they're going to continue to <coughs> try to find the door. I don't want to read too much into that, but I think there's, that point could be made. All right? Here's the question. How did Lot get himself in this situation? Abraham's not in this situation. But take your Bibles or your phones or whatever and turn to Genesis 13. Turn in your Bible or on your Bible, all right? To Genesis 13. I want you to look down. Now, let me set the stage here. Abraham is the uncle. Lot is the nephew. The herdsman of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot and all of their stuff, their silver and their gold and all their stuff, there wasn't enough room and there was a collision. So Abraham says, you know, this is not, this is not good. So let's pick up the action in verse 8. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine. For we're brothers, we're related. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, wouldn't you think 
that the nephew would say, you go first. Look what it says. Verse 10. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar, which is a small city. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself. He chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. Some say toward Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, were sinning greatly against the Lord. That's where it started. It had nothing to do with sexuality. It had to do with materialism. I want the best. I want it for me. Uh, here's the choice. I'll go to the left, you go to the right, whatever. He should have said, Abraham, are you kidding? My uncle, you go first. Abraham says, you go first, and Lot doesn't refuse that. It says Lot looked at what he wanted, and he chose what he wanted. And apparently that city must have been very attractive. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. And it isn't long before he is in Sodom. And there's a warning here. And the warning is, the basic simple truth is, that all of us pitch our tents towards Sodom from time to time. You pitch your tent towards Sodom. If you stay up late looking at things on the TV that you shouldn't be looking at, or on the internet. You pitch your tent towards Sodom if you find yourself in love with materialism. You pitch your tent towards Sodom if you find yourself lying a lot. All of those things are simply small compromises, small moral compromises, small compromises in integrity that lead to greater compromises. And before you know it, you're in Sodom. And then you're saying, how did I get here? What happened? You can't make anybody, as I've said before, you cannot make anybody want to follow Jesus. I can't, I can't make anybody want to do what this book says. I can't. All I can do is preach what I believe that God teaches and let it fall where it may. So here we find that, that all of us can find ourselves pitching our tent towards Sodom. So here's our lesson. And this is huge. The church is to influence the world not the world, the church. All right? The church is to influence the world, not the world, the church. But too much today, too much of what's going on in our society, the church often caves and gives in on lots of moral issues. And the church becomes lacking in its necessary salt and light as a preservative in this world, in a, in a dark and dying world. The church is to be seen as in loving disagreement, not condemning, not judgmental. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, the church is not to judge the world. If I had two gay people that moved in next door to me and they were married, I'd have them over for dinner. I wouldn't think twice about it. I was invited to something about a year ago. Somebody said, there's going to be two men, two gay men that are going to be at this event. I went over and sat and had dinner with them. First thing, first thing I did. Great guys. Two really neat guys. More righteous in many respects than many Christians. And many of these people have found real community because they haven't found it in the church. The church isn't to give up its moral direction, but it is to give up its judgmental attitude. 
And that's not an easy line to walk. We'll talk about that again, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. One of the narratives throughout the Bible is to allow us to see what a righteous person does in a pagan land. Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt, sold into slavery in Egypt, not his desire. When he gets out of prison, he stands before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, a heathen, an unbeliever. Pharaoh has, has everything. Joseph leaves, and Joseph has no citizenship. He has no clothes, so they had to clothe him. He has no food. He has no rights. He has no place to stay. He has nothing. And Pharaoh looks at Joseph after Joseph's interpreted his dream, and Pharaoh says, the one thing that Joseph has that I don't have, truly the Spirit of God indwells this man. Daniel, through no fault of his own, is taken captive and put into Babylon. In Babylon. And his influence upon King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's entire life turned around. And Nebuchadnezzar gives his testimony in Daniel chapter 4 about this new God that he has now believed in, this sovereign God. And then in chapter 6, it says that the king there looks, and the people there looked at Daniel and said, an excellent spirit is in this man. Interesting? An excellent spirit is in this man. Esther, who finds herself in Persia, changes Persia. If I perish, I perish. She's willing to stand before the king for a righteous cause to save her people so that the Messiah would come. We find, we find in the life of, of Paul, Paul goes throughout the Mediterranean rim. He's going everywhere, and he goes into cities, and he changes the city. Lot goes into the city, and the city changed Lot. And that's what I'm fearful is going to happen to the church. I'm not responsible for the church. I'm responsible for him. I'm concerned that the world will have such an impact that Christians throw their hands up and just give up. We're not at war, so to speak, against the world. We are here to love the world. We are here to show the world a better way. We are not here to take our bony finger and point at the world. That is not what we're here for. And if I were to, to look at this, um, and I look at this the way I do, I, I'm, I, I would like a person who is strongly opposed to what I believe, maybe somebody that's even very involved in the LGBTQ community, that would come here and say, I don't agree with one thing that man said. I don't agree with the Bible. I don't agree with this church. I don't agree with Christianity. But the Spirit of God indwells our city. That's what I want. I want a person that says, I am so violently opposed to what you believe, but I really believe you love me. I really believe you care for me. That is a challenge. <laughs> That is a hard challenge. That is not easy. That is hard. 
But that's what it's supposed to look like. Have you ever noticed the type of people that Jesus attracted? It wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't the narrow-minded bigots that saw themselves as better than other people. Jesus attracted prostitutes. There's a sexual moral issue. Drunkards, gluttons. <laughs> I didn't say this in the first service, but I wrote myself a tagline in between. The very people that Jesus attracted, the church seems to reject. The very people that Jesus attracted, the church seems to reject. But did Jesus attract them and say, oh, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya, live as you please? No, no. Go and sin no more. But I don't condemn you. Not an easy line to walk. Very tough one. And over these next few weeks, this is, the, this is what we're looking at. This is, this, is, this is not easy. This is a hard road to walk. But Jesus was so viewed by people around him that they would say things like, truly this man is the Son of God. Or, this man speaks with authority and not like the religious leaders. After he gave the Sermon on the Mount, talk about a difficult sermon. Talk about moral issues. Oh, golly, the Sermon on the Mount just slays everybody. And the people, the non-religious people were saying, this, this guy speaks with authority. Because Jesus could speak with authority and love at the same time. He could disagree and still be loving. And there was something about that combination that attracted people to him. And that's what we need for RBC. And how to navigate those waters is difficult. And again, if you happen to be here today and you say, I've never heard any of this, I don't know anything about all this, I don't get it. And you know you're struggling in your own life with whatever it happens to be. The whole theme of Scripture is that man is struggling in his soul. That he's tormented in his soul with all the struggles. And that Jesus came to set the captives free. He didn't come to say that you're going to be perfect when you choose to follow him, choose to believe in him. He said you're still going to struggle. You'll have difficulties in this life, but I've overcome this world. What happens is when you put your faith in Christ, when you believe in Christ, when you say, I really want to be a follower of this person, Jesus, what happens then? The Spirit of God indwells you and then starts giving you the power to overcome the things that have been tormenting your soul. That's the message of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what the world needs to hear. They don't need to hear that we're condemning, but that we're lovingly in disagreement. Because everybody in this world, no matter who they are, is convicted deep within their heart of their struggles. They're always convicted of their struggles, and everyone ultimately is looking for a Redeemer they just often look to the wrong place. So as you pray, as you think this over, a lot to cover, because we need to be a church that attracts people that are very different than we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, and I pray that should there be one, five or ten that are here today that do not know you personally, that today would be the day of salvation. That today they would realize they can't save themselves. There's nothing they can do. They can't turn over a new leaf or be righteous. It's impossible. But you have done all of that for them. When they put their faith in you and you alone, they pass from death unto life. So, Father, we just pray to that very end. And now, Lord, I pray that you would dismiss us with your grace with this last number, that we would 
leave here as people that love, love this world, that love those that disagree with us, that love people with, a, with such a passionate love that people would see something different. They would say, truly the Spirit of God indwells that Christian. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.